0: Before we get going into your Hockey IQ podcast episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Rapid Shot. Rapid Shot is the smart shooting lane. Uh, It's like a batting cage for hockey players. Very cool. Tracks your shot in three ways accuracy, shot speed, and reaction time. Uh, Easy to use. Uh, Actually, I used it when I played and was growing up. Very easy. Simply scan your phone in, select your settings, and start shooting. Uh, You can see your stats on the app and online. You can check them out at rapidshot.com. A great small business. I actually grew up with one of the owner's sons and have played with all the family members by now, uh, just in local pickups here in Ohio. Very cool local business. Awesome product. I love it. I know quite a few NHLers have them in their homes. Uh, A lot of D1 programs have it at their rinks. So you have to check this out. Rapidshot.com. Check it out. Rapidshot. Thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast. On the Hockey IQ podcast today, we bring on the magician, the WHA all-time leading scorer, Andre Lacroix. Andre, thanks for coming on.
1: My pleasure, Greg.
0: Well, we're both uh, Cleveland people at heart now, so uh, we can talk about the Indians and how great they are, uh, how the Browns would be terrible for another year. Uh, we don't even need to talk about the Cavs, not LeBron's left. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a long
1: time coming, I feel like. Well, you know, I, I've been watching them, to be honest with you. The, the, the sad part with the Indians, they've always had good teams, but they can't afford to keep their players. Every time they get good, the players sign someplace else for more money. And that's why I wish they would make a bigger story of, what's his name that signed for $20 million a year? For, uh, Ramirez? Yeah, I Ramirez. Wish- I wish, I wish he would make a bigger story because he's probably the only player in baseball that did what he did because he could have made a lot more money someplace else. And he said, hey, I'm happy here. You know, that reminds me of a story when Stephen Stamkos plays for Tampa Bay. Stephen, when he was a free agent, he had offers from San Jose and he had offers from Toronto. And the offers were bigger than what he made, he was making in Tampa. And he said to his uncle, who's a friend of mine, Larry Gertzakis, he said, what's a million dollars when you make the kind of money I make? And he said, "Besides that, I'm happy in, in Florida, in California, I'm sorry. And he said, then he said, If I play Toronto, I'm gonna give it to Uncle Sam. If I give it if I go to San Jose in California, I'm gonna give it to Uncle Sam as well. So I'll probably end up making less money. But he said I love I love Florida and that's why I want to play.
0: Yeah. He he did it. They were able to sign a bunch of other players and win a few cups, and he's just a great
1: leader
0: who's all about himself. It's amazing.
1: That's what it's all about. Absolutely. Winning the cup. Absolutely. Well, let's let's get into
0: some of your stories here, because you've got quite a few uh, from playing with Gordie Howe uh, to negotiating your own contracts. Um, I believe you, you led the Flyers in scoring one year as well. And you're obviously the WHA, the World Hockey Association's all time leading scorer. Um, for, and I'm cu- actually I'm curious. You did play for the junior Canadians way back in the day. I want to say it was the year prior to Scotty
1: Bowman joining. Did you know Scotty Bowman? Yeah. I know Scotty, when I played with junior Canadians, I was playing with Cornwallis, Savard, Lemaire, all these guys. We had a great team. And uh, Scotty Bowman was a scout. Cliff, Cliff Fletcher was a scout. The Montreal Canadian had the best scouts in, in hockey. And these guys, the only thing they did all the time in those days, they used to go to small arena like the pond right here at Hartford in Ava, you know, in Connecticut in Ohio, and then watch hockey players. And they would see somebody that basically thought was very really good and the kid was like maybe 14, 15 years old. They'll, they would go keep watching him, and that's how they got so good. But also, in those days, Montreal had an edge over everybody else. They had the first right to the first two French-Canadian hockey players. That was before the draft. And then that's why they won so many cups. And uh, then somebody got smart and said, wait a minute. We need to stop that here. This is crazy, you know. And uh, and I don't know if you know the story or they got Guy Lafleur. But when they drafted Guy Lafleur, it was either Guy Lafleur or Marcel Dion. They were one and two. And what happened is they had the LA Kings first-round draft pick in the trade that they had made for the Kings. And at the end of the season, the Kings were always playing the Seals home and home. And then it was a matter who the, the, between the two of them was gonna finish last. So before the trade deadline, Montreal made a trade with uh, the Seals. They sent Carol Van Ned, they sent uh, a goaltender. They sent like two or three guys to the Seals with the hope that they would beat the Kings in the final weekend of the season. And then they could get a first-round draft choice. And that's what happened. And that's how they got Guilla Fleur.
0: What a great trade. Give give all the players to the opposition. That's fantastic. And you're not even worried about it. That's, I mean, what, what a powerhouse Montreal used to be. But, you
1: know, Greg, what they were doing, and I'm not sure they do that anymore. In those days, the scouts, they were looking at the players' character They were looking at the player how he was off the ice first because they felt they could teach them how to play hockey if they needed to. But if the kid was a troublemaker, they does not know how good he was, they wouldn't take him. You know, Sammy Pollock had to be the best role manager I've ever seen in hockey. And uh, one of the reasons I didn't play for the Junior Canadian the last two years of my junior was because before the draft, there was what they called a C form. And the C form was a form that they make you sign, like they give you like $500 or $1,000. And if you sign the form, then you belong to them for the rest of your life. Bobby Orr signed that form with Boston. He was playing in Oshawa when I was playing in Peterborough. And Bobby Orr was good when he was 17 years old. You could tell he was going to be a great hockey player but you didn't have a choice. You had to go to Boston or you you wouldn't play hockey. In those days, you couldn't come and say, I'm going to sit the one year, then I'll go someplace else. They wouldn't let you do that. And then what happened is I wouldn't sign the C-form with the Canadians. And then Sammy Pollock basically didn't invite me the following year with a junior Canadian, and I had a good year with them because I would sign the C-form. And then... I ended up in Peterborough, and that's the best thing that happened to me because I was like 18 years old, couldn't speak a word of English. Nobody could speak French there. So I had to concentrate on hockey and concentrate on learning the language. And that's the best thing that Junior Canadian ever did for me. I won the scoring title two years there. And I, I mean, I was the MVP two years in a row. And I played with Danny Grant and Mickey Redmond, two great hockey players. And um uh, I, I you know things happened for a reason. And I was fortunate. I mean, I played midget hockey when I was 13, 14, and 15. We won three championships in a row that never happened before or since. And um I played junior B, my first year junior, after having such a great year in the midget, because that's our great, that's our good junior was in Quebec. Then I got promoted to the Citadels, which was a major junior team in Quebec, but then it was a level below to the junior Canadians. So after one year with the Citadels, they said, uh, Montreal want me to go and try out for them to play for junior Canadians. And that's how I ended up there in Peterborough and the rest is history. So you've been a great
0: scorer. It sounds like your entire career. I'm curious to dive into how you saw the game. And we were talking a little bit earlier about passing to players and your choice when to pass to players like your first look is always up ice and trying to play the dangerous pass but you're not going to just pass to a player who's standing still who may have someone coming to close them down and play hard defense on them curious to dive into how you saw the game and how you played the game
1: i was always what i call like a smart hockey player because i played center and i would rather lose the puck then gave it to one of my teammates that could get in trouble. Because that way, I mean, I'm not doing anybody any favor. And a lot of time, if I skate with the puck and both my wingers was open and I knew I didn't have much of an option, I always pass the puck back to my defense. I refuse to give the puck away. I hate – I don't watch much NHL hockey anymore, to be honest with you. And the reason I don't watch much NHL hockey is because I hate the dump and chase. That's not hockey, and that's what the NHL does now because the guys are so big and so fast, it's dump and chase, and then the other team gets positioned in the puck. They get to the red line and then dump it, and then the other team goes and get it. When there were 16 teams in the National Hockey League, the shots on goal were probably like 25, 28 shots on each side, but there were plays that were made. There were a lot of good, good plays that were made in the hockey. You don't see that that much anymore. You know, and also there's not much checking anymore in the NHL. It's almost like nobody wants to get hurt because they make too much money. I mean, you're watching the playoff, the playoff. I mean, you could have put skirt on them and nobody would have got hurt. That's how bad it was. So, and it's it's a shame because there's so many good hockey players in the NHL. I wish the coaches would let them play their game. But it's almost like if you look at the coaches, it's a recycling business. They go from one team, they get fired, and then they go as an assistant to another team until something open, and then they go coach another team. But they all, they all play the same system. I wish somebody would come and say, the way the, the way the Edmonton Oilers used to play or the New York Islanders used to play, and I don't want to go back to the way the Montreal Canadiens used to play because that was just awesome. But the reason the Islanders and Edmonton won so many Cups it's because they played hockey the way it should be played. They moved the puck, they passed the puck, they hit the people, you know, and they took care of their defense. But you don't see that that much anymore. So you're a big proponent of puck possession. Oh, big time. Well, listen, if you get the puck, the other team can score. So if you look at the team, I'll, I would bet almost certain that if you look at the time possession after a hockey game per team, like in a t- whoever plays each other, and I would say the team that had the time possession most of the time will win, I would imagine. It depends, obviously, on the power plays and stuff like that, you know. Uh, but the thing is, when you have possession of the park, you just frustrate the other team. But if you don't, look, I mean, they even dump the park now from inside from their blue line. And then when I played, the reason it was good, I, I, I'm so glad I played when I did compared to today, to be honest with you, because like, people would ask me, said, Adi, how much would you make if you played today and you had the success that you had? I said, well, when I played and when I had the success I had, the most I ever made was $175,000 a year. And I was one of the highest players then. I said, I would probably make $9 million today, but I wouldn't be happy. Because I don't know if guys like Gretzky, myself, I don't know if we could play the way we could do the things we used to be able to do. Because there's no way in the world that Gretzky will dump the puck in. There's no way in the world I'll dump the puck in. And I'm not sure the coaches will let us do that. Because we play the same style of hockey. And that's what people want to see. That's what people want to see. Good plays, good shot on goal, good checking hockey. But when you start, you know, look at the defensemen. Most of the defensemen today, they play like forwards. You know, in those days, you had defensemen that played defense. And that's why, you know, when you came back in the zone, you could have a breakout. There's no breakout anymore because the defenseman brings a puck out. They don't cycle in a corner to get the puck. Even when they cycle in the corner, they don't even give them the puck. They look for the long pass, but then if you could look for the long pass, it goes back to what we were talking earlier. There's a guy at the red line or over the red line, but he's by himself. So what is he going to do? Dump the puck in. That's not hockey.
0: Yeah, that's no fun. And I think it's the other not thing, fun. It's not fun because... watching. <laughs> No, it's not. And the other thing that I found really interesting about you specifically is, I'm, and you may still do this, but
1: I'm pretty sure you played with a straight blade your entire career. I never had a curve. I still have stick the one I played with. And the thing is, Greg, is our sticks were custom made. And they used to order them by the dozen, like two, three dozen at a time. And I had to go to each one of them because my, my blade was so straight that some of them came back. Some of them, I almost had like a right curve. And I wouldn't obviously I wouldn't play with the, with that, but I, as a center, I didn't want to curve because let's face it, even as a winger, as a winger, you're lucky if you get maybe four shots on a goal in a game. Okay, if you're center, you might be lucky if you get two shots on a goal in a game. So, why take a disadvantage to get two shots on a goal? And most of the time, the shots are not quality shots. So my feeling was with a straight blade, I could pass, I could pass the puck back end as well as I did forehand because I knew where the puck would be on my blade. But if you have a curved blade and you try to pass the puck on your backhand, depends where the puck is, the puck might not end up on your teammate's stick. So I never, I, I didn't even try to play with a curved stick to be honest with you. And I've had success at the youth level, I had success at the junior level, and I had success at the pro level with a straight blade. And,
0: and I find it really curious because, uh, if I remember correctly, you played with Bobby Hall, and he's yep. one of the first players to really go in on the curved sticks. And it may, may have been a compliment to, to each other, you and him.
1: Yeah, we see, but Bobby, the thing is, because of we shut the puck, Goalie, a lot of time, not because the shock was hard, because it, the goalies were scared to death, you know, of bobby shooting the puck. And I remember when I was in Chicago the, with the Blackhawks, the NHL had a rule where they would come in the morning and check your stick. They would check to make sure that the blade was legal. And then it would stamp your stick, which meant that you could play with it. But that was stupid, because as soon as he left the locker room, they would use a torch and make the blade bigger because the stick was stamped already, so you could play with it. You know? So, I mean, Bobby and Stan Mikita, that's what amazed me with Stan Mikita. Stan was a really, really good centerman. And and Stan had a curve as big or bigger than Bobby Hall on his stick. But he never passed the puck on his back and he always went on his forehand.
0: Interesting. So, so. You had two pioneers of the curve blade, and you're playing there with, I'm assuming other folks were were more straight blade at that time. I was the only one with a
1: straight blade. I was the only one.
0: Only one. Okay. But that probably gave you more range and ability to pass the puck
1: in areas that were a little more awkward. You know what was like that too, Greg, was Davey Keon Straight blade. And Davey was an unbelievable hockey player. With Toronto, correct? Yeah. Dave Keon, an unbelievable hockey player. But he had a straight blade because he played center and he knew that he could... See, the thing with us at center, when I played, it was always my goal, even in junior, it was always my goal to make sure that both my wingers were scoring goals. And the reason I say that is because if they score goals and I didn't want the second assist, I wanted the first assist, then we could have success. But if you only have, let's say, your left one year or your right one year that score goals, then every time the team plays you, if they do their homework, they'll say, hey, don't worry about the left side because you never pass the puck to the left side. So I didn't want that. So everybody I played with always had at least 30 goals. And that was very important to me. A lot of people ask me all the time, like, one year I scored 50 goals. And they said, that must have been awesome. I said, that was not the best year I ever had. I said, the best I ever had was in 1974 when I had 106 assists in one season. I always said to myself, wouldn't that be something if I could get 100 assists in one season? Because to me, it was like a baseball player that bet, that bats 400. And there's only four hockey players in the history of pro hockey that ever had 100 assists or more in a season. Gretzky, Lemieux, Bobby Orr, and me. Those are the only four hockey that ever – I won the scoring title. I had 41 goals, 106 assists. And the year before, I had scored 50 goals, and I was so much happier to get 106 assists than 50 goals because as a center, that's what you want. If you get 106 assists, that means your winger is going to score at least 30 to 40 goals, each one of them, and that's what happened.
0: And that propelled you onto the 1974 Summit Series team for Canada against the Soviet Union, where you actually were tied third on the team with Gordie Howe in scoring, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And I'm curious to dive into what it was like playing against the Soviets and their style, which is probably a little more aligned with how you liked playing the game versus maybe some other teams in North America played a lot more dump and chase type style.
1: Well, I thought the Russian was one the best team I ever played against. And the reason they were one of the best team that I played against is because they moved the puck where you're supposed to be not where you are. And I remember watching them, they would get mad at each other because the guy was not in the right po- in the right spot and the guy moved the park. And they, 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 they didn't have more than 20 or 25 shots on goal every game because they never shot the puck on goal unless they had maybe 70% chance of scoring. And they would go back. They wouldn't go one-on-one. They would go, they would wait to get two-on-one. And they always moved the puck. Their defense was were as good as their forward as far as skating ability, moving the puck. And the thing is, I always said, one thing I learned at playing junior. When you play junior, if you have the puck more than five seconds on your stick, you're going to lose it. When you play pro, if you have the puck on your stick more than three seconds, you're going to lose it. That means you better find someone that's open. See, that's why when you see a guy trying to carry the puck, you know, I mean, try to do it by themselves, they end up losing it because there's no way those guys are too good. It's not going to happen. You need to use your teammates. And I learned that at a young age, that I needed to move the puck as a center. But I said, when I move it to you, I want you to give it back to me because he's going to go to you. So when you give it back to me, that means you're going to be open and I'll give it right back to you. I am used to talk to them all the time. Even like when I played junior, Greg, I, and I did the same thing in a pro, in the locker room, I made sure I sat beside my, my line mate because between periods, we would talk, you know, because there was no video then. So we would talk about things that happen and w- there something we saw on the other team that we could use to our advantage. But I always like to sit down with my line mate in the locker room. So before the game and between periods, we could talk about things that we could do on the ice.
0: Communications. You're building the bonds of chemistry. I think that's absolutely fascinating.
1: That's what it's all about. Bond and chemistry. You got it right there. That's what it's all about. You know, uh, that doesn't mean that we were best friend on the ice, but we were best friend on the ice.
0: Yeah, yeah. So making sure that at least understanding each other and able to facilitate yes. quality play. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: that's, that's awesome. Um, did you ever play on the same line with uh, Gordy Howe, or were you always center one, center two type situation?
1: No, I played with Gordy a, a few times in, in Hartford you know, uh, to be honest with you, what happened with Team Canada, I was supposed to play with Gordy and Mark, which would have been awesome. But then Bobby went to Coach Arias and asked him to play me with them and Johnny McKenzie because I was supposed to play with Gordy and Mark because, see, Gordy and I became, and Mark as well, we became very good friends because we both lived in, Mark and I live in Avon, Connecticut, and I used to raise a lot of money for charity when I live in Hartford. And I had golf tournament. We had a lot of my game and Gordy always came to my golf tournament. Even when I, I went to Oakland to work for a while, I invited Gordy to come, he had a new book out. there. Gordy, if you want to come to Oakland, try to sell your book. He came to Oakland, California. Well, he paid his own way to come there. He, he came to all my golf tournament, all the alumni games I had. We were very good friends and uh, same with Mark, you know, People people don't realize, I still believe to this day, Greg, that Mark Howe was the second-best defenseman to ever play hockey behind Bobby Orr. He was unbelievable. He was great, great skater. Defensively, if you look at his plus-minus, it's unbelievable, okay? Uh, he was as good defensively as he was offensively. And the when he had the puck, if he... He was thinking like a sentiment. He felt like me. Mark always made the right pass to the, the guy that was in the right position, but he would never make a pass to a guy that could get in trouble. And the, a lot of players, when he was in Hartford, that was probably the downfall of the Whalers. The worst, the winners made two of the worst deal in the history of hockey. When they trade Mark out to Philadelphia, and when they trade Ronnie Francis to Pittsburgh, those were two of the worst trade in the history of hockey. Two of the greatest hockey players. And basically, Ronnie Francis, I really don't believe Pittsburgh would have won the cup with Ronnie Francis. I mean, Mario LeBrief, Mario could have played as you know as many years as the rest of them, he would have been as great as, as Wayne Gretzky. But Pittsburgh need that second center to complement Mario. And Ronnie was a guy. But the winners made terrible, terrible mistake when they trade those two guys.
0: Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Mark, how it still holds the NHL record for most shorthanded goals by a defenseman, which really showcases
1: oh, yeah. how talented he was and, and how involved what? he got. The other thing, Greg, Mark didn't want any publicity. He didn't want to be, he, he, he didn't want people to say, oh, look at Gordy's son. He wanted to be Mark. Mark didn't Mark did like to do interviews. Mark, he just wanted to go and play the game. And the, one of the reasons the people in Hartford, I'm talking about the management now, the coach and, this, and the general manager, one of the reasons they were mad at him is because they didn't think he was trying hard enough. I said, he didn't have, he was so smooth, he didn't have to. He worked, he worked hard, but the other guys had to work twice as hard because they didn't have the skills that Mark had. That was a problem. That's funny.
0: And I find that a lot of times you look at players and people are like, are they lazy? And I'm like, I think they're just really talented. And it looks like they're not working hard because they're so efficient in their movements. Well, Meanwhile, a player who looks like he's trying absolutely hundred miles an hour, moving body parts left, right, and center, uh, is probably doing a little too much and actually putting himself in a bad
1: spot. Well, look at that kid in Colorado on defense. Okay. Uh, yes. Kael McCarr. Okay. He plays like McCarr. If you watch him, when he wants to go, he's an unbelievable skater. But he never panics. Never panics. And then if someone tries to hit him, they can catch him because the puck will be gone before they can get to him. And you cannot teach that. You either have it or you don't. And this kid has it. Mark Howe had it. And that's why I think this kid's going to be a star for many years unless they screw him up, really. And that could happen. But you don't see too many kids like this playing that way to be at that age. You don't. Unless they screw them up. So I'm curious on what you mean
0: by that is, and that'll probably dovetail us into your, your after playing career in coaching and your philosophies that you've took, taken from all of these great great hockey minds, including yourself, and how you've gone to teach uh, the next generations of players.
1: Well, you know, the most frustrating thing to me when I struck coaching, like, you know, like after I retired from hockey, I tried very hard to coach in the NHL, to be honest with you. And I never got a chance. Uh, when Bill Danil was a coach in, with the Flyers, I called Bill, I said, Bill, I would come. I would like to come and work with you as an assistant coach because I would like to, you know, get involved in coaching, ta And he said to me, he said, I would love to have you, but uh, they told me who I had to hire as a coach, as coaches. Then when Pat Quinn was coaching the Kings, Pat, when Pat was with the Flowers as a player, I was playing in Chicago, even at my house in Philadelphia. So when he went to he, he end up in coaching, I called him and asked him, I said, do you have any opening? He said, Andre, he said, I have two guys that we can't play them anymore. They're not good enough, but they're on the contract. So we have to pay them. So we have to use them to do something. You know, so there there was always a reason why I couldn't get into professional hockey, and then at one time I had I thought I had an opportunity to go coach at Colgate, which would have been my dream, coach college hockey. Colgate had an opening, and there was someone that was a big shot at one of the insurance company in Hartford, Connecticut, at the Travelers. And he said, Andre, he said, my name is So and So. He said, you don't know me, but he said, uh, someone told me I should give you a call. We should have lunch. I said, sure. So I go to the travelers. We have lunch. And he was a big donor at Colgate. And he said, I understand that you would like to go to college hockey. Then we talked for about an hour, maybe. And after we're done talking, you wrote a letter to the school. My dad couldn't have written a better letter than that. And then... I got something from the school. But the school, one of the they ask you is, what college did you go to? Well, I didn't go to college. I played junior hockey. As soon as I, they found out I didn't go to college, I never got an interview. That was it. There's not a guy, that, there's not a college team that will hire a coach that didn't go to college because they're afraid the alumni might not give them the money when they need it. It's sad because, you know, because a lot of guys that would be really good coaches at the college level because my argument was, I don't understand why they didn't invite me at least to talk because the last thing I would do is to push someone to play pro hockey. That's the last thing I would do as a coach. I want the kids to get an education. Then if hockey is not there, then you got something to go back to. But You know, they never give me a chance to give them my philosophy. So what is
0: your coaching philosophy after all of these years? Uh, I mean, it's obviously been successful in the Cleveland area. You had one team where I think like all 16 players or something like that on on your youth team eventually went on to become captains of their high school teams, which is absolutely
1: amazing. Well, I have a picture in my my house to be that I own on the wall and with all the kids, basically, that uh, I coach. I coach basically at the youth level, okay, and I coach at the high school level. And they all they all went on to play for different, different, you know, high school. But then when they went to college, a good friend of mine, Jim Smith, said to me, he said, Do you know how many kids you coach in high school that basically end up being captain of their team at the high school level? I said, no. So we started counting them. We had 13. Kid played at St. Ed's. Kid played ganston you name it. Sir Falls, you, anywhere. So I said, oh, my God. So we decided one year when we found that out, we invite all the 13 captain. bring your high school jersey with the C on it. And we all met at the pond. We took a team picture, the captains and I, and we had a lunch. And I had pictures made up, and I had everybody sign them, and I give all the kids a picture of all of us together. And, I mean, you'll never see that. I mean 13 captains. And, you see, the reason, Greg, is because when I coach youth hockey, I refuse to name captains. I would never name captains. At the high school, I agree with that. At the youth level, I don't agree at all because parents are the worst. So you give the captain the thing, the kid thinks he's a big shot, number one, and he thinks he can do no wrong. So, as far as I was concerned, when I coached youth level and I had a lot of great hockey players, to me, they were all captains. When we went to tournaments and we won tournaments, they always asked me at the end, they give you the trophy and then they ask you to name the player of the tournament. I said, They all are. I refused to take that trophy. I refused to give it to anybody because I didn't want anybody to think that, you know, they were special. And when we won the, when we won the, and we won a lot of tournaments, I kept changing. Sometimes I send the two goalies to pick up the trophy after the the championship. I always pick somebody else. So nobody thought that, you know, I I favor somebody. But to me, that's how you, that's how you build a team chemistry. If they know up front, the way you're going to treat them, they're going to play for you. And that's what I did. I, I treat everybody the same. Everybody had a role to play. It didn't matter if you were on the third line or fourth line. You had a role to play on the team. And I made sure they knew that. The toughest thing as a coach is not your best player. The f- toughest thing as a coach is to keep your third and fourth line players happy. If you keep them happy, you're going to have a good team because they're going to come to practice. They're going to work their butt off. They won't get as much ice time as the other two lines, but they'll get some. But you try to find the right role for each one of them on the third and fourth line, and you're going to have a good team. That concludes
0: this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockey'sarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to
1: the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you, Buttes, here next week for a brand new episode.